welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. This week, I talk with Tom Steyer, who continues to challenge, provoke, and humorously poke fun at the political system. How perfect it was that on Saturday Night Live, Tom was played by Will Farrell. Steyer was born in New York City. His mom, Marnie, was a teacher at the Brooklyn House of Detention, and his father, Roy, was a lawyer and a prosecutor at the Nuremberg Trials. Tom graduated from Yale in economics and political science, and he was captain of the soccer team. He received his MBA from Stanford and then began his professional career at Morgan Stanley. In the mid-1980s, Tom founded Farallon Capital, a San Francisco hedge fund where he was known for taking high risks on distressed assets within volatile markets. In 2010, Steyer and his wife Kat Taylor signed the Giving Pledge to donate half of their $1.6 billion fortune to charity during their lifetime. And in 2012, he sold his stake in Farallon Capital and switched his focus to politics and the environment. Tom then launched NextGen America, a nonprofit organization that supports action on climate, immigration, healthcare, education. And then this happened. Well, six months after saying that he would not run for president, billionaire donor Tom Steyer is officially entering the 2020 race. The former hedge fund manager spent millions of dollars promoting the impeachment of President Trump since 2017. He's also donated large sums of money to Democratic candidates and environmental causes. According to The New York Times, Steyer is planning on spending $100 million of his own money on his campaign. Steyer is now the 25th Democrat currently in the primary field. Steyer's campaign says he'll focus initially on environmental policy and ways to revamp the nation's political system. The 62-year-old billionaire former hedge fund manager from California is a major Democratic Party donor and environmental activist. His decision to jump in comes as another Californian, Congressman Eric Swalwell, announced he's dropping out of the presidential race, the first candidate to do so since the debates. I start by asking Tom probably the most important question on all our minds. Why, in every presidential debate, did he wear a bright red plaid tie? A tie which became so famous, it now has its own Twitter feed. I've worn this for decades. Some form of a red plaid tie, which I bought out the store when I was in London at the House of Scotland. Nice. Of every red I love that plaid store. tie in the store in Piccadilly Square. And I wear it because, A, it's cheerful. It is. Because if you're going to get up in the morning and move things forward, then you've got to have some energy and some get up and go. And it gives me some energy and get up and go and gives me the courage to go out and try and get things done. You've had a hell of a year. I mean, it, it's hard to believe because I always feel like we're in a time warp in COVID, but this is the year that you ran for president. Yes, at the beginning of this year, I was running for president. Yes, at the beginning of this year, this Mr. Trump was being impeached in the House of Representatives. That's all this year, hard to believe. Then COVID, economic slowdown, climate crisis, <laughs> you know, the confronting of our systemic racism as a society. One of the, probably the sharpest attack on democracy since the founding of the Republic. And it's not even October yet. And you saw a lot of this coming. I mean, to be to be very clear, a lot of people were kind of, well, there's going to be a, a line in the sand that Trump crosses. But you were like, no, we, we need this guy out really early on. 
my strong opinion was that he was a criminal and was betraying the American people in absolutely crucial ways from the very beginning and then covering it up. And I think that as more and more evidence has come out, it's shown that the things that I was talking about were true, that there was endemic corruption at the most fundamental levels. He's tried to fill his personal bankruptcy with payments from foreign countries, which is absolutely against the rules and absolutely against his sworn duty to put the American people first, but was always clear. So do I take any you know, pleasure in that? Absolutely not. Look, as far as I'm concerned, we just have to look forward. And so I'm working as hard as I can to make sure that over the next five weeks through November 3rd, 2020, Americans come together and realize we have to stand up for ourselves. We have to take back the democracy. We have to confront systemic racism. We have to act urgently on the climate crisis. We've got to deal with COVID and accept science, and we've got to rebuild our economy in a more just way. Boom. Nice. So when, so when you thought about running for president, which is not something that most of us ever think about, it seemed like the goal was to really make sure that climate was part of the debate. And, and tell us about like your thinking about, about the political process and climate and, and why there's such a big gap going into this election cycle of a voice like yours and then Jay Inslee around climate. I think that there has been a sense from the political establishment that this doesn't play. It may be true. It may be devastating, but the bad outcomes will be after I'm in office, so why would I, I don't have time to deal with it. We have to anticipate and avoid huge disasters, not go, oh my gosh, we've had a huge disaster, now what? And particularly in climate, where the ability to change course is you know, a matter of a long, extended, intentional, urgent period of time, we have to start immediately. And so I felt as if that has to be part of the conversation. I also felt as if systemic racism, you know, I, I, there were a number of times in the debates where I said, you know, wow, we're not talking about this huge issue in the United States of race, which goes to the core of all the issues that we're talking about. And that if we don't address that, then we really can't move on together. I, I was trying as a candidate to bring up the things, the taboos, the truths that for whatever reason are critical to our survival, are critical to our prosperity, critical to our justice, but for whatever reason are not something that people wanted to talk about. Where are you feeling we are as a species at the moment? Well, I mean, there's no doubt living in California, having seen twice as many acres burned this year as have ever burnt in any year in California history. 2x anything. And the last time was two years ago. That was the previous record was two years ago. We're living the climate crisis. So are we going to avoid the implications and pain of climate change? No, we're clearly not. There are record number of storms in the Gulf. We are seeing new, much more alarming projections about glacial melt at both poles, but also all over the world. And we're living, you know, fires and air pollution here in California at a level that no one's ever experienced before. So we're clearly, we're not going to avoid all the problems. 
But it's also clear that we have to both deal with the issues on the ground today and protect people, and we have to try to avoid as many of the issues in the future as we can. So there's no giving up. That's, you know, absolutely ridiculous. There's no denying we have a problem. That's absolutely ridiculous, even though the president of the United States does it on a regular basis. And, you know, we are looking at the quality, safety, and existence of people on the planet going forward. And so here we go. We, you know, the biggest thing we can do right now is make sure on November 3rd that we have a president who accepts science and deals with science. And we have... An and, and maybe accepts the results of the election on November 3rd. Yeah. That's not... The number one thing is the, the results. Yes. If, if, if one gentleman refuses to accept those results, then we have 320 million people who accept the idea of democracy. I mean, let's face it, in, in terms of climate, the president can take executive action, the president can rejoin Paris, the president can set miles per gallon rules. There's many things the president can do, but there are many things the president can't do without Congress. And so it's absolutely critical that in fact, the Congress represent the people of the United States. You founded NextGen really to think about the gap between the people who care about these issues and the, and the folks that are actually voting. Like there's a big deficit between people who are registered and care about the environment and people who vote. And, and those are the people that we need November 3rd. How did you get engaged in that? And, and well, kind of where are we today? NextGen America, which I started eight years ago, is the largest youth voter mobilization effort in American history. And that's, a, I mean, that's a mouthful. But it's basically saying young people between the ages of 18 and 35 are the biggest generation in American history. They're the most diverse generation in American history by far. They're the most progressive generation in America right now by far. And they voted half the rate of other American citizens, which means their impact on the political world is half of what it should be. So that's, you know, you can slice the American voting population in a lot of ways. But the truth is, the biggest generation in American history is not being heard or is being heard at half the level it should. And people in the country felt that it's too expensive to organize young people. And I felt it's too expensive not to organize young people. 2018 was phenomenally successful. And in 2020, I say to everybody who I talk to, because the way the media covers the election is, it's like you're sitting at a table with your family trying to persuade each other about which candidate is better or which party is better. And I say to everybody, look, are you willing to change your mind about who you're voting for? And everybody goes, absolutely not. And I say, have you ever persuaded one person one time to change their mind about how they feel about Donald John Trump. And they go, absolutely not. Are you crazy? And I say, so it's really not a question of how you're going to vote. Everybody knows how they're going to vote. And the polling says 3% of Americans are unsure. Three. Yeah, nothing. So the real question is, are you going to vote at all? Because the highest percentage of young voters that's ever showed up at the polls is 52% in 2008 when they were massively inspired by Barack Obama. 
And so my answer to all of these questions is no. We have half of the biggest generation in American history that has never voted. And that is a gigantic opportunity for change. And when you say if 3% of the people say they're not sure, and let's say it's split, let's say they're telling the truth, that they're they're really telling the truth, they don't know how to vote. So one and a half, but if you flipped a coin, one and a half percent would vote for the D's and one and a half percent would vote for the R's. And if you did a fantastic job, what would you change? Half a percent? We're talking about tens of millions of people who don't vote. We're talking about massive change. And so that's why I started NextGen. That's what I believe in. I believe that young people don't vote because either they're intimidated and don't know how to register and do it, or because they think the system is broken. They think it doesn't. Neither party cares about them. There's no difference between the parties. It's all a sham. Why would I participate? And the answer, and that's the start of a conversation where we say, no, 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 no. Let us make the argument about why your vote in conjunction with the votes of your peers changes the world for you going forward, changes the world in, for the better for everybody you know. And that's a conversation we can win over. And when people say, you know, if you ask me, have I ever talked a true Trumper to change his or her mind? The answer is, I don't even know how to have the conversation. But have I ever talked 20 people in an hour into voting? Yes easily. So how, so there's 20 people an hour. Tell us about what NextGen is doing right now, what you've done in the last eight years. Like what does that process well, of convincing 18 to 35 year olds look like and how are you sustaining well, it's it? it's totally changed this year, Jared. Right. In 2018, we had a phenomenal year. We're on 11, we chose the 11 swing states, most of which we've been in for eight years at this point, that we thought would make the difference in flipping the house. And we moved into 38 congressional districts within those 11 states. And we're physically there. We're on 420 campuses. So what does that look like when you're physically there? What, what does that presence it look like? It means that we have a table that's set up at the quad. And so everybody going to class and everybody going to the dining hall and everybody going to the library passes by and we accost them. And by we, is, is it people their age or? Yes. Yeah. And so every, I think everybody who works at NextGen is under 35. It may literally be true. And so, and I go sometimes and do it with them. And I'm also shameless about doing it because I think it's really important. So I would say, Jared, do you have a second? Because are you planning to vote on November 3rd? And you see. And, and I say, say, no, yes, I say, I'm playing uh, FIFA on big screen right now, Tom. Well, sorry. Like, and then I've got to go well, and get. Excuse me, Jared. Okay, yeah. If you, will you fill this out? Just check off the issues that you think are important. It'll take you 15 seconds. We've got them. Okay, 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 okay. So we get into a conversation. I say, are you registered? No. Okay, well, we can register you to vote in under a minute. So if you have a minute, we can put you on our iPad right now and register you to vote in the next election. So okay, why don't so we let's, just let's, do that? Let, let's say I haven't done it. We do it in a minute. I guess my question is based on on everything you just said. So, Jared, just you just registered me to vote. Um, Tom helped me do it. How do you get get me to actually vote? So, because now we have your information. It's not like we go like, Jared, it's so great to meet you. Have a great life. We'll see you in heaven. We're like, we're gonna. We then follow up with that person. We say, Jared, 
voting is on Tuesday and today's Saturday. Do you have a plan to vote? And they go like, not really. And I say, okay, well, what's your schedule look like? The polls are open from X to Y. The polling place, do you have a way to get to the polls? I mean, you're going to take your bicycle. Do you have to take a bus? Is it walking districts? Or should we give you a ride? We literally drive people to polls. We have pizza at polls. We have puppies at the polls. We have a petting zoo at the polls. Nice. We will do anything yeah. to get people to vote, to show up. And what and what are the results that, you, that you've seen? In 2014, 18% of the people between 18 and 30 voted. Less than one out of five, but pretty comparable. In 2018, in the 38 districts we were in, 41% of wow. the people voted. So more than, not up by 50%, a like lot. almost two and a half times. Yeah. So it was a, a big move. 33 flipped. 33 of the 38 Huge. flipped. We were in all seven districts in California that went from red to blue. You know, we were in the 11 swing states. We want to make sure we go to the community colleges which is where most of the kids are in California. We want to make sure in the states that have them, we're in the historically black colleges and universities. We want to make sure we're reaching out across the spectrum to every voting person between the ages of 18 and 35. So in March 10 of this year, we made a decision. We're 100% virtual. Mm. We went from 420 college campuses to zero. We're on zero campuses. We have zero door-to-door. We are doing no in-person canvassing. And was that hard? I mean, that was pretty prescient back in March. None of us really knew would campuses be open or not. I mean, that that allowed you to kind of double down on that investment. So I was the person pushing for this because I was like, no, we, we can't plan on being out there. We don't know what it's going to be like. So we have to just assume the worst and do everything online. No person to person, we're off every campus. If you thought about who in the world can be organized exclusively online, you would think, well, maybe 18 to 35-year-olds would be a good place because they live online. So, And who would be good to organize them online? Maybe 18 to 35-year-olds because they live online. We have influencers who push out the right to vote. We have 1,400 Hmm. influencers who have followers online of over 24 million young people predominantly in our swing states. Sometimes it burns. Sometimes it hurts. What was that moment in your life, Tom, when you went from a a world of investing to a world of thinking strategically about the future and the environment. Has it always been with you as a kid? Or like, how did that evolve in you? Well, I do think that anybody who's really devoted to the natural world at some level has an intimate, personal, loving relationship with the out-of-doors. I do believe that, and that's true of me for sure. I really love, have always loved being in the woods in a million different ways. I have four kids now who are 32, 30, 28, and 26. But like 15 years ago, we were sitting around the table saying, in 100 years, when people look back at us, what are they going to say? This group of people was so bloody stupid that they missed, boom, this. And they're like, 
climate. I was like, you think climate? And they're like, climate. And I'd sort of, it'd been in the sort of the edges of my consciousness. And, it, and I thought, okay, I'm going to look at this. There was great gradations of me trying to figure out in a serial fashion, what's wrong here? Is it the tech? Is it the understanding of what's going on? Is there some question here? And anyone who's been involved in this has to have a feeling that at some level, they're living in a grade B horror movie. I think about it every day. Do you, do you feel Shaun that way? Shaun of the Dead, generally. And and it's like the, yeah. you know. Or Hot Fuzz. You, it's 45 minutes into yeah. a movie and they've set it up and you're in an idyllic small town and you go into the diner at 10 o'clock where everybody's sitting there having coffee and talking about the Little League game. And you go, there are zombies in the woods. And they go, Jared. I know you've been working a little too hard. And I know there's been a lot of pressure on you. But that's how people viewed you, Tom. I remember 15 years ago when you started, I was in San Francisco and you'd kind of got religion and zeal. And it almost was like you were saying there were zombies in the woods and people like, Tom's a little kooky. I mean, what? What is? why is he so fixated on this? You've gone from the extreme into the mainstream, right? The mainstream is now... No, because the NPR poll that we talked about last week. Number one issue for the Democrats. The number one issue voters. for Democrats. That, you couldn't have imagined that four years ago, let alone 15 years ago. Oh, I absolutely could. Okay, well, you could, but I, mean, I couldn't. Jared, I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, the, the effects are here. You know, we're starting to see the effects, but the effects were eminently, I mean, I'm, I was an investor, a professional investor for three decades. The whole game is to sit there and think about not what's happening, what's going to happen. No one cares about what's happening because that's a fact. The question is, what is going to happen? And your success is about being right. It's not about being eloquent. It's not about being persuasive. Am I surprised about what's happening? No. I mean, you can see this. It's like a freight train coming right at you. It's like, if it keeps going at that speed, it's going to run over me. Okay, it's two seconds later. If it keeps going at that speed, it's going to run over me. Boom! I, I guess I meant the psychological aspect, which is you were kind of treated like an outsider with this, you know. Still am. Well, less Still and am. less. Really? Absolutely. Okay. I, I Look, in this, there are people who care about this and who get it. And you know who those people are? The people being poisoned. They get it. If you, if your family lives next to a chemical plant and your parents both died at 43 of brain cancer, it's you like, get it. do you think yeah. this is going on? You're like, heck yeah, I know this is going on. My parents are dead. You know, I have a, my old roommate's wife lived next to a coal plant as a non-smoker. She got lung cancer at 42. Mm. Did she think that coal dust was bad for you? She had lung cancer. Yeah. She knew it was bad for you. And so, you know, I, the reason I'm so into environmental justice is like, it's the facts. Those people who are being implicitly discriminated against know that their kids have asthma, know that their parents are dead, understand that, my gosh, this is incredible. And they've, they've been voiceless. They've not been heard. It's, you know, most people had never heard the words environmental justice until maybe this year. But in California, people have been talking about this for decades. And that's why we have progressive laws because you got it. I mean, it's sort of like 
you got to get the people on your side who are really on your side. I mean, when I talk about young people voting, it's like they're already the most progressive generation ever. They're already there. You just have to convince them to vote. Environmental justice people know we need clean air and clean water or we will die. Yeah. And so you just got to get their voices and, you know, make sure you're lined up with them and give them the power to speak out and you'll, you'll get political change. Have you been limited by people seeing you as a billionaire as opposed to someone who's trying to get youth to vote? I know how lucky I was in so many different dimensions. And one of the things I say to people that I feel incredibly emotional about is I know that this society has been built on the blood, sweat, and tears, and deaths of millions of people who will forever be unrecognized. And is that the people who, you know, fought the wars? Yes. And is that the people who were enslaved? Yes. And is that the people who worked for ruinously terrible wages in factories for nothing? Yes. And I will never be disrespectful about that or think that, oh, I did this all myself and anyone who tries to you know, make me give back is taking away something that I earned on my own. And, you know, God damn it, no one's ever going to make me give any of it up. I think I find that incredibly disrespectful and arrogant and completely unrealistic. So as far as I'm concerned, do I recognize how lucky I am to have been born here into the family I was born into with all the demographic characteristics that made me never have to worry about a whole bunch of things that a lot of people have to worry about all the time? I absolutely know that. So when I think about you know, what I'm owed and what I earned and what I owe, I see it you know, in a way that apparently other people don't which is I know I'm incredibly lucky. And if I want to have a meaningful and decent life, including the word decent, then I want to be contributing to society in the way that society has contributed to me. And society is just other human beings. And I want other people to get the chances I got equitably. And I want people to live a dignified, healthy life together. That's So I look at all this stuff and I feel like It is very, very, very tempting to be a greedy, selfish SOB for people. I know that. I'm a human being, too. I can be a greedy, selfish SOB. As someone who's an investor, as someone who understands the markets, often I think we're framing the climate crisis in a way that makes it feel like doom and gloom. But like, it's going to create jobs. Tell us about the opportunity. Six years ago, we put out the risky business report that said, if we move to clean energy, build the infrastructure, spend the money, we will grow faster. We'll have better paid working people. We'll have more net jobs. We'll have better health across society. It's a, and we'll avoid the hugest problems facing mankind. And so good grief. This isn't a close call for all the people who say we can't afford to make the change. You are dumb heads. 1970 business was like, we can't afford clean air. No, it's going to kill us. It's going to cost us trillions of dollars. Everybody knows the Clean Air Act saved trillions of dollars, created millions of jobs. These arguments are really, really stupid. We have to make the change and we have to bring everyone along with us and we have to respect people and do it the right way. Absolutely. 
But overall, do we have to do it? Yes. And will it make us healthier and better employed and better paid and richer? Also, yes. Which is a winning combination. So final thing, Tom, what for those people who have a little bit of money thinking about investing it for the future, like what are the kind of companies that people should be looking at? Not necessarily by name, but like what are the kind of things Look, someone... What I believe in is growing companies. The way you make money is investing in companies that are selling more products every year, selling more services every year, hiring more people every year because they have something that the world wants and the world is going to want more of. But let me give one piece of warning to people if you're going to talk about investing. I always ask people, if you're thinking about investing for yourself, let me ask you, do you pull your own teeth? Do you do your own brain surgery? I think a lot of times the best thing you can do is do the simple thing and avoid mistakes. And so if you don't have the time to do the work, and for instance, I don't have the time to do the work right now. I do, that's a job for a professional who, who's fully employed in it. So if you don't have time to do the work, my advice is use indexes. Figure out what percentage, but don't try and pick companies because you actually don't have the time to do it and you don't have the time to follow it. And if you're doing your job as a teacher or government employee or whatever, you have to do your job. You don't have the, you know, you don't have the time to learn how to be a dentist. You know, your skills at brain surgery may be a little lacking. I think the thing to do is don't try and be smart. Just try and do okay and you'll do just fine. That's the history. And so ask yourself, don't trade, don't pay commissions, keep it as simple as you possibly can. Avoid the things that you don't want to be associated with and otherwise keep it as simple as possible and just keep going. It sounds like a recipe for life in general. A huge thank you to Tom Steyer for spending time with Podjaba today. The skills needed to be a good investor, namely understanding what will happen in the future, align closely with what's needed to fight climate change. By extrapolating out the timelines of the climate emergency, Tom has helped a generation of younger Americans appreciate the importance of voting like their lives depended on it. Tom's focus on the numbers brought him to realize that changing minds is very difficult, but helping someone get to the polls is relatively easy. Tom and NextGen have used social media for something really great, getting out the vote. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jared Blumenfeld, it feels like today is the perfect day to invest in our future. Listener.